0: Hello and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I am your host, Luke Rodeheffer. Joining me today is Shinar Akhturk, an assistant professor of international relations at Coach University and author of the recent book published by Cambridge University Press, Regimes of Ethnicity and Nationhood in Germany, Russia, and Turkey. So before jumping into the interview, I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a background on yourself and how you became interested in this topic.
1: Yes, sure. I graduated uh, from the University of Chicago. I did my BA there, followed by a master's in international relations also at the University of Chicago. Then I uh, went on to study comparative politics at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh where I wrote the dissertation that was the basis of this book, although that dissertation uh, was revised uh, significantly uh, in producing this book. And then I spent another year as a postdoctoral fellow at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University, where I was also a visiting lecturer teaching comparative politics of post-communist societies for a semester in 2010. At that point, I uh, left the United States and came to Turkey uh, to start teaching at Koç University in Istanbul uh, since July 2010.
0: Okay. And your book is unique in that it, I guess it's not so much unique, but it's, it's interesting that it also uses archival research as well as interviews in three different countries. So... Can you talk a little bit about how long the, the whole writing process took, what archives you worked in, things like that?
1: Um, first of all, Germany and Russia were interesting for me, uh, going back also to your first question. Uh, both as somebody who is interested in ethnic politics, but also as a, as a Turkish person, of course, these are the two, countries that Turkey trades the most, has the most intense uh, relations, not just economically, but in terms of tourists and the human interaction, and also um, in a military strategic uh, way, Russia for sure is the biggest uh, geopolitical threat Turkey faced for the last 300 years. So there were these kinds of personal biographical motivations for studying Russia and Germany, Um, and both Germany and Russia uh, encapsulated a particular view of uh, ethnic diversity and uh, nationalism for me. Uh, When it comes to the logistics of doing the research, I spent about 13 months, an entire year, 2007 away from Berkeley, uh, almost equally divided between these three countries. I spent uh, three, three and a half months each in Germany, Russia, and Turkey. In all three cases, I divided my time between reading the transcripts of parliamentary debates on uh, ethnically relevant issues as well as trying to interview as many public figures from as different political opinions as possible in these three countries. If I were to assess the difficulty of getting an interview, I would say it was most difficult in Russia and the least difficult in Germany. Uh, You can see that uh, actually pretty much in the appendix where I had the list of about 60 interviews I had Half of them are with German officials, so I had as many interviews in Germany as I had in Russia and Turkey combined, and I was able to interview a member of the German parliament from each of the four uh, large political parties, also at the local level, in terms of the Abgeordnete House, the House of Representatives of Berlin as well as the Bundestag, the federal parliament. Um, In the German case, it was somewhat straightforward, uh, sometimes as easy as sending an email to the secretary of uh, the parliamentarian uh, MP. In the Turkish case and the Russian case, I certainly needed referrals from people who knew these people. So what we call the snowball sampling. So, I had to start with some people who uh, already knew them and it was somewhat more difficult. Um, So, and you can see the results in the book. I mean, I have quite long um, quotations uh, either from parliamentary proceedings or from interviews I conducted in German, Turkish, Russian, and English. I did prefer interviewing them in English if they were fluent just because of the risk of losing something in translation because I had to translate all the interviews into English, anyways, uh, in preparing the book. So, and that worked the best in the German case where there were the most number of uh, people who were absolutely proficient, uh, without a doubt, in English. And it was the most difficult in, in the Russian case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Turkish was not that much of a big deal either, because I'm a native speaker, and I I, uh, I was uh, sure not to lose any nuance, even uh, uh, even uh, in full translations. So, uh, so that's pretty much uh, the summary of what I did.
0: Okay, um, so in your first chapter, you lay out a complex explanation for how countries are able to shift their policies towards ethnicity, uh, and you use the terms monoethnic, ethnic anti-ethnic, multi-ethnic. Can you explain quickly what each of these terms means in the case of your book?
1: Mono-ethnic regime indicates a state that restricts citizenship to one ethnic group only. And we have surprisingly many countries around the world that have privileged citizenship for for a particular group of people. Germany is the case that I'm examining in my book. But if you consider the fact that even Kazakhstan, which is otherwise a very multi-ethnic country, has almost automatic citizenship for ethnic Kazakhs living anywhere in the world, mostly in Mongolia, China, Russia, Turkey, around Central Asia and and, and the Eurasian steppe. Uh, This uh, shows us that the Kazakh state sees itself primarily as the state of the ethnic Kazakh. The situation is not much different when it comes to Japan, different only in the sense that Japan is already overwhelmingly ethnic Japanese, so by denying citizenship to non-ethnic Japanese, like the Chinese and the Koreans and other immigrants who are permanent residents of Japan otherwise, they are equating ethnicity and nationality. To a certain extent, the Israeli right of return is similar, uh, granting automatic citizenship to any uh, ethnic Jew around the world. Uh, but not to Christians or Muslims, Palestinian or otherwise, uh, this shows uh, that the state uh, favors one ethnic, uh, ethnic group. Germany was the historic example of a mono-ethnic state, right? I mean, if the... Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that's the, that's the um, topic of uh, the book when it comes to Germany. How come Germany... Uh, continued with the Citizenship Law of 1913, which granted automatic citizenship to ethnic Germans from Romania, from Kazakhstan, from Russia, uh, from all around Eurasia, uh, to people who did not speak a word of German in some cases, who have been living in Russia for over 300 years, at the same time that third-generation Greek or Turkish immigrant children born and raised in Frankfurt or Hamburg or Munich could not acquire German citizenship as late as the 1990s. So that's the problem uh, in the the German case. Uh, So an anti-ethnic regime is one where the state does grant citizenship to multiple ethnic groups but does not allow the legal, official, institutional expression of ethnic diversity. So in that case, the state is trying to assimilate a very diverse, ethnically diverse population into a national culture. Here, the metaphor would be the melting pot, which an American audience would very much be uh, familiar with. Uh, Historically, uh, the example of an anti-ethnic regime based on assimilation is France. Bretons and um, uh, Occitans and Alsatians and all kinds of different ethnic groups who otherwise had their different non-French languages were assimilated into a French culture. Even though they were given citizenship, they had voting rights. So this is not Japan, this is not Korea, this is not you know some other mono-ethnic uh, states. Finally, the third type is multi-ethnic, where the state does give both gives uh, citizenship uh, to different ethnic groups and allows the institutional and legal expression of ethnic differences. What does institutional and legal expression of ethnic difference entails? Multiple official languages, ethnic territorial autonomy, um, ethnic affirmative action policies, quotas in bureaucracy, in various forms of uh, employment, university entrance examinations. Soviet Union, historically, is a very good example of a multi-ethnic region, and the Russian Federation as well, and those are the ones, that is the one. I take Soviet Union and post-Soviet Russia as one case, really, in the book. That's the historic case that I examine. but Lebanon could be another example, right, with quotas. Bosnia, Herzegovina, Canada, Belgium, with its bilingual, actually trilingual, complex ethno-federal structure would be an example. India, Nigeria, uh, these uh, vast uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious states based on uh, ethno-religious federalism would all be examples of multi-ethnic law. And Turkey, in my book, uh, stands for an anti-ethnic assimilationist state. Uh, So this is the brief summary of the three ethnic regime types.
0: Okay, and you also lay out a thesis that explains how these three countries have been able to shift their ethnic regimes over the course of the 20th century. Uh, Can you lay out briefly the three sections of this thesis?
1: Uh, You are right. The first chapter of the book uh, talks about the typology of mono-ethnic, multi-ethnic, and anti-ethnic regimes, but the rest of the book is really about the transition from one ethnic regime type to another. Um, Is it the case that countries, once they are founded as a monoethnic regime, stay that way for the rest of their existence? I don't think that is the case, although this is the prevailing um, impression one gets from reading books on uh, nationalism and the rise of the nation state. Uh, and although I admit that it is rare for a country to evolve from monoethnic to anti-ethnic or from anti-ethnic to multi-ethnic, there are um, notable changes. And I uh, took uh, three such instances uh, for examination in this book. Germany did eventually change its citizenship law of 1930 in the year 2000 and it did allow uh, non-ethnic Germans uh, citizenship. Turkey did lift uh, the ban on minority language broadcasting and publishing, finally, and minority languages with uh, public funding uh, were used in public television broadcasting and, uh, since 2004. And uh, Russia finally did get rid of inscription of ethnic origins in individual identification cards. Uh, in 1997, although it has been in place since the time of Stalin for about 65 years. How do these policies change? Uh, I argued that uh, for states' policies on uh, ethnic diversity to change, we need the coincidence of three factors. The first factor is that you need a government in power that has the support of constituencies with ethnically specific grievances against the status quo. To give a concrete example, Kurds in Turkey are a constituency with ethnically specific grievances against the prevailing official policy of assimilating the Kurds, not recognizing their existence and not recognizing their language as an official language. So any government, any political party in government that had the support of a considerable portion or majority of Kurds would be a counter-elite. I call these uh, political uh, groups counter-elites if they have uh, the support of uh, constituencies with ethnically specific grievances. But that has never been enough. You had uh, in Turkey governments in power that came to power with the majority, uh, with the votes of the majority of Kurds since 1950, but they could not change, they did not change the policy towards Kurdish, Arabic, and other minority languages since the 1950s. Um, You also need a new ideology of nationhood, a new ideology ideology that redefines what it means to be German and ethnic origins, what it me- means to be Turkish and ethnic origins, a new ideology that redefines the relationship between ethnicity and nationality. That's what was missing for most of German, Turkish and Russian history, a new definition of German-ness, a new definition of Turkishness, a new definition of Russianness. Uh, again, to make it, intellig- uh, to make it even uh, uh, more uh, close to home for an American audience, I would say, uh, probably the civil rights movement and the discussions of the 1960s and 70s redefined what it meant to be an American as well as being an African. And hence, you had the rise of hyphenated identities such as African-American, Irish-American, Jewish, American, Arab, American, Armenian, American, and so on and so forth. This kind of redefinition of what it means to be German, what it means to be Turkish, what it means to be a Russian uh, did not take place until very, until very late in the 20th century, which the book discusses. But even these two conditions together, that is, a new discourse about um, uh, nationhood uh, and counter-elites in power were not enough these counter-elites in government had to have a hegemonic majority, usually in the parliament, but it doesn't need to be only the parliament, but at least in the parliament, they needed to have a safe majority. Uh, Why is that the case? Uh, I observed that in all three cases, state policies on ethnicity could not be changed with razor-thin majorities, with 51% majority. Why is that the case? Because these ideas of... Germanness, Turkishness, Russianness are so entrenched in public and in politics and bureaucracy, in the military, in academia, in the universities that if a government tries to change this definition radically, it's going to face an opposition that goes beyond just the political sphere. That includes the bureaucracy, the military, the universities, the intellectuals, and so on and so forth. And in order to overcome that opposition, it needs a majority that is more than just 51%. Because invariably, when governments launch such radical reform proposals, some members of their uh, party start resigning in protest. And in order to withstand such uh, resignations, such fallout, from the reform proposal, they need a safe majority. Because if they have 51%, they are going to lose their majority very soon after they launch their reform initiatives. And that's what I observed in Germany in 2000, in Turkey in 2004, and in Russia in 1997.
0: Okay, so the first country that you look at then is Germany. And you note that the citizenship law Uh, that continued on into the post-war period was created in in 1913. So can you explain a little bit about this law and how it essentially created a kind of mono-ethnic political culture within Germany?
1: Uh, The law of 1913, which predates National Socialism, the Nazi period, uh, but which was kept during Nazi rule, and even after uh, the collapse of National Socialism for another 50 years, 55 years, uh, conceives of German citizenship as the right, or rather the privilege, of ethnic Germans alone. And in that sense, And it used to be ethnic German men. So even the woman, uh, there was also some uh, inequality between uh, citizenship passing from men and not women. But I don't deal so much with that in the book. Uh, But according to this definition, somebody who could demonstrate that he has ethnic German origins, but living in Manchuria or Vietnam, or Kyrgyzstan could acquire German citizenship upon visiting the German embassy in their respective country. Because Germany was the state of ethnic Germans. In contrast, because naturalization was almost impossible for non-ethnic Germans, it had a minimum 20-year residence, but also uh, many other requirements such as orienting yourself uh, fully uh, towards uh, German culture and habitus, these kinds of uh, details. The naturalization rate was much less than 1% per year. It was 0.1%, 0.1, 0.2% 1 in a thousand, 2 in a thousand, because it was made extremely cumbersome for a purpose. Uh, German national community was imagined, uh, constructed not imagined, but institutionally, legally constructed such that it would be equivalent to German ethnic community. Uh, and that of course kept about 6-7 million permanent residents of Germany who were not ethnic German originally. And here we are talking about the millions of so-called guest workers who were invited to Germany after the Second World War to rebuild the country when it faced severe labor shortages following defeat in the Second World War. Here the largest groups are Turks, Spanish, Portuguese, Greeks, Italians, and later also various Yugoslav peoples such as Serbians and Croatians, and smaller number of Arabs from Morocco and Tunisia. And their combined population reached 10% of the permanent resident population of Germany. But they had almost no hope or opportunity to acquire German citizenship until the historic citizenship reform of the year 2000.
0: Okay. And in your your discussion of the mono-ethnic political discourse that prevailed in Germany, uh, you Use as an example, a speech given by the the Christian social, Christian social Democrats, if I'm not mistaken, the political party that uh, it makes a very interesting argument saying that America's and kind of the multi-ethnic system of ethnic policy is actually very flawed. I was kind of interested if you could expand more on what criticism and what problems they saw with the United States in particular and and multi-ethnic policies in general.
1: Um, Yes, uh, the speech that you are referring to is by the CDU, Christian Democratic Union representative from Berlin in the Federal Parliament of uh, Germany in the Bundestag in uh, 1982, Uh, and that's uh, Rolf Olderock is the parliamentarian, where he argued that, uh, and I'm quoting from his speech, when we glance at the United States, we notice that there are two big groups have not been integrated. People who are not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, those who cannot show these characteristics, are often not integrated. The tourists may like to rave about picturesque Chinatowns, but the politicians and policymakers record subcultures and cancerous ulcers such as the mafia in these slum areas of ethnic minorities against which politics and administration have been fighting for decades so far unfortunately without any success for the most part. And then he goes on and on talking about the uh, disastrous influence of the Polish American and the Greek American and the Jewish American lobby on American foreign policy and how these ethnic lobbies are derailing American national interest uh, in a way that is uh, harmful to overall uh, national interest. And basically that's what Germany is hoping to avoid, uh, is, 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 is what he's saying. It's, it's, again, this speech, for example, that I quote at length uh, in the book, summarizes the Christian democratic view of Germany. I mean, in ethnic diversity, let alone religious diversity, because he also has very, not very uh, flattering things uh, about uh, the Muslim minority uh, among these immigrants, namely, mostly the Turks and Arabs. uh, They see in ethnic diversity, a diversity of interests such that it would conflict with the national interest. So for the national interest to be coherent and without contradiction domestically, you need an ethnically homogeneous population. is is the vision of of Christian Democrats. And this is a representative from Berlin, one of the most multicultural cities. So you would imagine, if any, the Berlin representative of Christian Democrats to be somewhat more open to uh, ethnic uh, and religious diversity. What is surprising here for me, and I think maybe uh, uh, we can speculate as to why that is the case, is this Germany Federal Republic of Germany is established by the United States in collaboration with France and Britain. As you know, the British, French, and American occupation zones are united into the Federal Republic of Germany, and the Soviet zone becomes German Democratic Republic, Communist East Germany. And it is surprising that although all of the Western allies, France, Britain, and United States— have incomparably more liberal, ethnically blind immigration and citizenship policies, including France, which far more easily grant citizenship to Algerians and Tunisians and other Arab and non-Arab Muslim and Christian minorities that arrive in, 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 in France, that are born in France. Germany resisted uh, those models uh, even in the sixties, seventies, eighties, all the way into the end of nineteen nineties, because it was able to somehow preserve its historic peculiarity as a narrowly ethnic nation state. And it required the coalition government of Social Democrats and Greens in nineteen which came to power in nineteen ninety eight, to crack open this very narrowly ethnic conception of German nationality, and it actually took a concerted effort by the German government where they had a public campaign, ep ein Deutscher, I'm a German, spending millions of euros advertising non-ethnic German soccer players, TV personalities, and advertising them also as Germans, you know, some Turkish origin or Nigerian origin or Greek origin, a uh, German TV personality, or soccer player, or musician, uh, was um, advertised as a German, just to give the idea, communicate the idea to the German population, that the definition of Germanness is being changed at the turn of the twenty-first century.
0: Um, and you also talk a little bit about what happened. In the decade following the major change to the citizenship law, uh, particularly not only in in Germany but also in wider Europe, you have the publication of the book Deutschland schafft ab, so Deutschland Germany is abolishing itself, as well as uh, claims by the current government in Germany that multiculturalism has failed. So I was wondering uh, of how you how you see these discourses as developing in the 21st century, particularly in light of the recent. European parliamentary elections that gave the far right in Europe a significant increase in its representation?
1: right. Um, I would make two important uh, points here with regards to the debate on multiculturalism in Germany and as that relates to the greater European debate because Germany is so central to the European identity debate. On the one hand, I think the shift from a narrow, mono-ethnic conception of Germanness to an anti-ethnic one based on assimilation is done and it is pretty much irreversible. Already over a million non-ethnic Germans have acquired citizenship. Actually, over a million ethnic Turks alone uh, have acquired German citizenship and uh, Thousands of Greeks and Italians and Spanish as well. And the German public now accepts more or less a Vietnamese origin leader of the Liberal Party, (FDP). The leader of the FDP, wrestler uh, is an ethnic Vietnamese who was adopted by German parents after, uh, during the war. Uh, and was raised entirely as, as a german uh, uh, culturally so in his accent in his uh, demeanor in his uh, you know everyday life you would not be able to distinguish him from from, from the majority german society except for his uh, appearance which is the appearance of a of an uh, of an ethnic vietnamese from vietnam Similarly, uh, the co chairman of the Green Party is a Turkish origin politician by the name Jeb Özdemir. So, in terms of accepting fully assimilated non ethnic Germans, Germany passed that threshold. What Germany did not become is a multi ethnic, multicultural state. And that was a big mistake. Uh, in the discussions in, you know, 1999-2000 when the citizenship law passed, people hailed that as a step towards multiculturalism, not really, because that uh, citizenship law change, for example, made it impossible to have double citizenship for the largest group, especially the Turks. So they had to renounce any other rival loyalties and citizenships in order to become German citizen and German citizen alone. And that's not necessarily a step towards assimila- uh, Sorry, multiculturalism as it is towards assimilationism. Also given the fact that Germany took an exception to the European Convention of uh, Minority Rights and Minority Languages by saying that it will never recognize a minority language from former immigrants. So none of these immigrant languages, Greek and Serbian and Croatian, Italian, Spanish, Turkish, etc., would be recognized, not just today, but even in the distant future as a minority language in the sense of the European Convention on Minority Languages. They didn't have to take that exception in signing the Convention, but the fact that they did shows their fear of actual multi-ethnic multilingual state these fears are augmented when we talk about religious diversity and especially religious diversity that has as it usually has public manifestations when you consider the fact that there was an initiative in the German uh, legal system in the constitutional court to criminalize circumcision. It was a it was a case brought up also in relation to a Muslim citizen of Germany uh, as a result of a of a of clearly a circumcision went wrong in the hospital that the court basically took a decision uh, to try the doctor who performed the circumcision for for uh, for, for a criminal act of uh... and this created a major uh, controversy, of course, in Germany. Not only, of course, for the Muslim community, but also for the Jewish community, for whom uh, circumcision is is a is a is a is a religious uh, ritual, uh, especially given the history of. Um, German jury, uh, this uh, attempt at criminalizing circumcision was immediately taken back, and uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, uh, and a religious exception was put in place. But there were still are attempts to criminalize a, a ritual animal sacrifice, which again uh, leads to an immediate backlash from the Jewish and Muslim community for whom kosher and halal meat has to have ritual animal sacrifice. Uh, And we can continue giving examples ritual animal sacrifice, circumcision, uh, the carrying of conspicuous religious symbols, whether that's a headscarf or a yarmulke. All of these examples I have a few pages uh, discussing, especially these controversies, indicate that Europe has not come to terms with religious observance. It is coming to terms with ethnic diversity to a certain extent, but not religious observance. And I and, and I give an example in the book, a, a metaphor, uh, what Europe, what the real trial, the litmus test for multiculturalism in Europe is, is a Muslim Joe Liberman. And by that, I mean a religiously observant Muslim public figure or politician who can make it in France or in Germany or in Italy uh, and so on and so forth, these countries that are having these controversies. Because for these publics to accept a completely assimilated ethnic Vietnamese or ethnic Turk who doesn't show any uh, conspicuous sign of... uh, 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 of, of uh, lifestyle difference in their everyday habitus is not that much of a tough test the real tough test is going to come with religiously observant uh, uh, Muslims in particular
0: so the the next example that you your next case study that you offer is is that of Turkey and um, could you First, briefly give a just kind of sketch of what Kemalism means and kind of the ideology of that was espoused by Turkey's founder, particularly how it related to um, ethnicity and uh, mono, kind of the the religious question within the Turkish Republic.
1: To uh, sum up, uh, the Turkish formula was to accept more than a dozen different Muslim ethnic categories, Arab, Bosnian, Circassian, Kurdish, Zaza, and many others, as Turkish citizens with the condition that they assimilate into the Turkish national culture by learning and speaking Turkish and preferably only Turkish in the public sphere. And given that they do this, they did not face any barriers in the bureaucracy, the military, or politics. Hence, we have dozens of uh, Kurds, Circassians, Arabs, Albanians who made it in Turkish politics, military bureaucracy, as high up as president, prime ministers, ministers, high-ranking generals, chiefs of staff, and at every level. Now the door of assimilation and door of Turkishness was shut from the very beginning to non-Muslims, who were, who became demographically marginal anyways because start uh, because already in the early republic, uh, the state encouraged their emigration. Uh, reduced their population to only 2% of Turkey's population and continued uh, encouraging their emigration and uh, uh, basically uh, reducing their population further to uh, around 0.1, 0.2% of Turkey's population. Pretty much negligible demographically today. So it's very difficult for you to encounter uh, Orthodox Greek or an Armenian or a a Jewish person anywhere outside Istanbul, but even in Istanbul, only very designated few neighborhoods today. Uh, So the real issue Turkish state policy faced was not with non-Muslims, who were uh, reduced to a very small number, but with Muslim ethnic groups, in particular Kurds, and Zaza, which is a related ethno-linguistic group, they speak a language that is similar to Kurdish, so I am not a native speaker of Kurdish or Zaza, but uh, people who are tell me that these are languages that are uh, as similar as uh, Spanish and Italian, so they are distinct languages, so we shouldn't we shouldn't automatically assume that zazas are simply kurds no they have their own uh, indigenous language and culture that is distinct from the uh, from, from from kurds but these are groups arabs as well i mean there are at least 2 million if not more uh, turkish citizens of arab descent who can speak or at least passively understand the arabic language uh, So these Muslim ethnic groups, because they had citizenship, they had full voting rights and they could participate in Turkish politics just like uh, anyone else and uh, assume positions in the bureaucracy, the military uh, and and politics, they uh, step by step over time voiced uh, their demand to express their languages and culture in public without the fear of repression and assimilation. This was most pronounced in the case of Kurds, but also to a considerable extent in the case of an ethno-sectarian identity group known as the Alevis in Turkey. Alevis are a heterodox version of Shiite Islam. They are not uh, Shias as in Iran. They are not Jafiris, the Iranian Shia, but it is a version of Shiite Islam. uh, that uh, combines Sufi elements uh, from Anatolian history. And they also are uh, much like Kurds, at least, uh, you know, uh, somewhere between 10 to 15 percent of the population. So sizable population uh, that can make a difference in national election results and can make a difference in national politics. Uh, they also voice their uh, demands uh, to express their uh, ethno religious sectarian identity uh, in public uh, and that's basically i mean turkey's problem has been the problem of assimilation and uh, the reactions that assimilation provokes whereas germany's problem problems after 2000 were one of exclusion from citizenship and the reactions that this exclusion, this segregation provoked. And Germany overcame that problem more or less because it shifted to a policy of inclusion through assimilation whereas Turkey is trying to grapple with the problems of inclusion through assimilation because that's also not a satisfactory, fully satisfactory outcome for many ethnic minorities, Kurds being the primary example among
0: And the, the current government, which you discuss as being able to finally carry out this shift in the ethnic politics of the country, uh, has, has got, garnered a lot of credit for carrying out a peace process and continuing a peace process with uh, the Kurds and really pushing to offer them more autonomy with regard to their culture. Do you see these policies as still being successful in maintaining popularity for the current government?
1: I definitely believe that these policies worked to continue the popularity of the current government among the Kurds. My estimate is that at least half, if not two-thirds of the Kurdish voters vote for the Islamic Justice and Development Party, which has been the one-party government in Turkey since 2002. So it has been the longest uninterrupted democratically elected government in Turkey's Republican history. It's a major feat and a reason, an important reason for this popularity is the fact that Justice and Development Party is more or less unrivaled among the Kurdish voters compared to to the other national opposition parties, the only other party that gets the Kurdish vote is the Kurdish Nationalist Party, but that's more or less an ethnic regional party that doesn't have appeal anywhere else in Turkey. So it has no chance of being in government. It's, at most, it garners uh, uh, six six and a half percent of the national vote, and with that vote, it's not going to be. Uh, it's certainly not going to be. Uh, uh, the only party in government. It could, in the distant future, become a junior partner in a coalition government with a bigger party perhaps, but it doesn't have appeal outside. So the current government certainly does reap the benefits of legalizing Kurdish language, making it a secondary language in state schools, that's the middle schools and high schools, uh, allowing publicly funded Kurdish language broadcasting since 2009. Uh, actually, even since two thousand and four, uh, uh, since two thousand and four, uh, Kurdish has been one of five minority languages broadcast through state's television channel TRT three. And since two thousand and nine, there has been a Kurdish only TV channel, also fully publicly funded, a state channel. And all of these, uh, and since two thousand and eleven, Kurdish has been an optional. Uh, Uh, optional uh, language uh, taught in uh, public middle schools and high schools. And all of these steps uh, were followed by unofficial negotiations. Unofficial but pretty much publicly very well known negotiations between the current government and the PKK, Kurdistan Workers Party, which is recognized as a terrorist organization by the United States, European Union, and Turkey, of course, uh, and the fighting between uh, PKK terrorists and the Turkish military claimed the lives of up to 35,000 people since 1984, which makes uh, uh, PKK one of the longest lasting and most violent uh, guerrilla terrorist insurgencies in in the 20th century. The only other comparable cases that come to my mind right away are the FARC in uh, Colombia and uh, Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. So uh, the government has so far um, been successful in uh, ending the fighting. So for the last couple of years the death toll is in single digits, or at least, uh, at most, uh, double digits over a year, whereas in the 1990s, we had thousands of people killed per year uh, in in this fight. So in that sense, the government is successful. But what I did emphasize, and I think in that I may be first in the literature uh, on Turkish nationalism and and the Kurdish insurgency, the government's motivation in launching Kurdish language reforms and this multicultural opening is Islamic. That's why I uh, I label their policy as one of Islamic multiculturalism. The current government justified legalizing Kurdish, Arabic, and other minority languages on the basis of Islamic religiosity. They make very frequent references to the Quran and the famous sayings of Prophet Muhammad in uh, arguing that ethnic and even religious diversity is a sign of God and we have to protect this diversity because allowing people to speak their languages and practice their faith and and their culture is a God-given right enshrined in the Quran and in Islamic law. And this appeal resonates with the overwhelmingly non-Kurdish Islamic electorate, uh, and it was its crucial function has been to convince the non-Kurdish majority in Turkey to accept Kurdish language and Arabic language broadcasting and all of these reforms, which were unthinkable in the nineteen nineties, nineteen eighties, and before, because of the strong, Kemalist. Secularist Turkish nationalism that was predominant for much of Turkey's 20th century history.
0: Okay, and the uh, the last country that you examine is of course Russia, and you do a good job of discussing kind of the foundational policies of the Soviet Union towards ethnicities and uh, how they attempted to create, in Terry Martin's term, a uh, affirmative action empire, but then they. By granting, um, by using a federative structure to to give ethnic minorities uh, rights. However, they ran up uh, against a serious problem in the 1970s when they attempted to remove ethnicity from the passport of Soviet citizens. So, can you briefly explain why the Soviet Union was not able to achieve this?
1: Right. Uh, In the beginning, the reason Stalin uh, decided to write the ethnic origin of every Soviet citizen in their individual passports, which is the equivalent of an ID card for every Soviet citizen, In 90, starting in 1934, was to build the basis for ethnic affirmative action. Because one of the major promises of socialism in the Soviet Union and around the world was to end ethnic racial discrimination. So by promoting historically repressed minorities in the Soviet Union. Soviet Union would give an important message to its own citizens, but also equally important to the rest of the world, that there is no ethnic or racial depression under socialism, that Kazakhs, Armenians, Azeris, Ukrainians have their own official languages, their own flags, their own ethnic autonomous territories, preferential treatment and affirmative action favoring ethnic Armenians in Armenia, ethnic Azeris in Azeri, ethnic Tatars in Tatarstan, and so on and so forth. And that's officially, at least, the justification for building what, as you uh, uh, very well put, uh, in the terms of Terry Martin, the first affirmative action empire in the world. However, another uh, unofficial reason for uh, this uh, policy was also to divide Soviet citizens along ethnic lines so that they cannot put up a common front against totalitarian communist dictatorship in the future. However, by the 1970s, smart communists like Yuri Andropov, who later became the general secretary of the Communist Party, the leader of the Soviet Union. Uh, But even before that, Khrushchev and Brezhnev, they saw that passport ethnicity, ethnicity in the ID cards, was also a liability for the Soviet Union because it was feeding ethnic nationalism and potentially ethnic nationalists opposition against the Soviet regime. So they started thinking about removing ethnicity and instead just promoting the idea of a Soviet nation, which does exist in the literature. They very often talked about Sovietsky narod as I spend an entire chapter talking about Sovietsky narod. It has been translated into English until now as Soviet people, but As I uh, point out, uh, based on other examples in Soviet publications, actually, Narod was used equally as often as uh, a a synonym for nation. So this can just as well be called Soviet nation. And they were trying to promote this idea since the 1960s, increasing in the 1970s and 80s, because they were getting ready to... uh, potentially remove these ethnic identifiers, these ethnic identifications, and create a socialist melting pot. And that was really the end goal. Soviet policy was based on three stages. Uh, Rasvet, the flourishing of ethnicities, Siblyzhenia, the drawing together of ethnicities, and Selyanya, the merger of ethnicities into one big Soviet nation. But they could never reach that ultimate merger. Uh, Of course, there were groups, especially Soviet Jews and Soviet Germans, who were most discriminated by having their ethnic identities in individual passports. And the reason for that is because, for example, Soviet Jews were otherwise very educated, urbanized, very much Russified in terms of being absolutely fluent in the Russian language. And it was only the inscription of Jewish as their origin in their ID cards that prevented their upward mobility in society, in the party bureaucracy, uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, Jews, Germans, these kinds of ethnic groups without territorial autonomy, groups that did not benefit from ethnic affirmative action, rather suffered from ethnic discrimination, they advocated. And demanded the removal of ethnicity from the passports, but they could not succeed, as the book demonstrates, I think, in quite detail, uh, throughout the 60s, 70s, 80s, even uh, under Perestroika and Glasnost and the first term of Yatsin, Only by the second term of Yatsin in 1997, uh, ethnic origin was removed from Russian ID cards.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the, I think really, really interesting argument that you present there. And you, you also highlight a lot of facts that I think deserve a lot of, of scrutiny and, and claims, particularly on Andropov's plan that you discuss in some detail to completely rearrange the Soviet Union, um, along economic lines instead of ethno-territorial lines. And, um, so one last question on, on Russia is, um, was interested in, in what you see as the future for the ethno-territorial status or the status of the various territories within Russia and Putin's attempts to reform the administrative structure of the country.
1: I think post-Soviet Russia definitely made the transition, strategic decision to transform Russian Federation step by step into a more assimilationist, melting pot type of classical European nation-state. Why do I say this? Because, for one, the key variable, the policy that I examine in the book, removal of ethnicity from individual ID cards, was, and it was interpreted by ethnic minorities, as a step towards assimilation. For dozens of ethnic groups in Russia, who almost entirely lost their language, who are otherwise assimilated into the everyday life routine of the ethnic Russian majority, mentioning of ethnic origins in their ID card was the last reminder of their ethnic difference. I'm thinking of groups like the Komi, or ethnic Jews and so on and so forth. So with ethnicity gone from the passports, in the next generation, we'll see the rapid disappearance, the rapid assimilation of these ethnic groups. That's one piece of evidence. Second, this was not some um, random policy decision. For example, Yeltsin also resolutely resisted having ethnicity in birth certificates at the end of his term. So this is part of a coherent grand plan uh, because Russian authorities also decisively refused Tataristan, which was the most assertive republic in this sense, to voluntarily insert ethnicity in their ID cards because we might understand the removal of compulsory ethnic origin inscription in ID cards, because some people might not want to have that. But Tatarstan led the charge among ethnic republics to at least have voluntary indication of ethnic they call it also national origins in individual ID cards, but the central government in Moscow uh, did not um, allow that and in fact, said that's unconstitutional. So uh, they stood against that. After Yeltsin, Putin came to power, and he abolished the Minister of Nationalities, which was yes a Soviet legacy, but it also existed under Yeltsin, and its primary purpose was to highlight the fact that Russia is a multi-ethnic, multinational state with multiple ethnic groups together forming the Russian. People. And by abolishing Minister of Nationalities again, Putin actually gave the signal that he's not, not going to tolerate uh, pride of place to the multi ethnic nature of, uh, of uh, the Russian Federation. On top of that, Yeltsin actually changed the structure of the Federation. Uh, sorry, not Yeltsin. Putin changed on top of that. Putin changed the structure of the Russian Federation. When he came to power, there were 89 subjects of the Russian Federation. When he left office for the first time in 2008, there were 85 subjects of the Russian Federation because he abolished four ethnic autonomous okrugs, And those were, of course, the smallest, weakest ethnic autonomies. I'm thinking that he started the erosion of ethnic territorial autonomy where resistance is likely to be the least. And that was the ethnic autonomous focus. So the next steps will be the merger and abolishing of more and more ethno-territorial autonomies. Uh, With the annexation of Crimea, which is the only ethnic Russian majority territory within Ukraine, Russia is again continuing on the path of Assimilation in the sense that ethnic Russian majority is being emphasized more and more. And non ethnic Russians are being asked unofficially, but quite obviously, to assimilate into the uh, language and culture of the ethnic Russian majority. We see more and more references to Ruski, ethnic Russian, as opposed to Rossiski, inhabitant of Russia in public speeches of leading politicians. And all of these signs are, I think, unmistakable indicators that Russia is making that leap forward or backward, however you want to interpret that, towards a more assimilationist classical European nation state such as France or early 20th century Turkey, By eroding forms of multiculturalism.
0: Okay, that was an excellent summary of the various, both your argument and the various case studies you offer. Um, I think we're running out of time, but briefly, would you want to mention any of the current research that you're carrying out?
1: I am expanding on uh, the same notion of ethnicity regimes. Uh, I'm concluding a four-year research project called Regimes of Ethnicity Global Survey of uh, Ethnic Demography and State Policies Toward Ethnic Diversity and Religious Diversity. Uh, We have sent out surveys to experts of ethnic politics in every country with a population over a quarter million around the world. And uh, I am compiling the results as a reference book, as a small encyclopedia uh, of state policies toward ethnic and religious diversity from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. Uh, And hopefully that's going to be uh, published in a few years. But uh, again, uh, the survey is ongoing. It will be completed by the end of 2014. And then hopefully in 2015, 2016, uh, we'll start publicizing the results in the forms of articles and finally a reference book and an encyclopedia of state policies toward ethnic and religious diversity around the world.
0: Okay, I think that's it for this interview. Thank you, uh, Dr. Oksherk, for joining me for this interview. And I'd like to thank all of the listeners of the podcast, New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And I hope you'll join us again for the next edition. This is Luke Rodheffer signing off.